Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, June 8th. We begin with details on a planned Calgary vigil for the victims of the tragedy that took place in London, Ontario earlier this week. We get details on the event being held Tuesday night at City Hall from Saima Jamal, co-founder of the Calgary Immigrant Support Society. Next, we look at the fallout and now investigation of the shocking discovery of 215 children found buried at the former Kamloops Residential School. We speak with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. Mercedes shares with us details of her interview this week with Jody Wilson-Raybould, of course, the former First Nations Chief and current Member of Parliament. Albertans will have the chance to make their voices count at our next municipal election when it comes to equalization payments from the province to the federal government. But will the vote really amount to anything? We get some clarity from a political science professor at the University of Calgary. And finally, what's in a name anyway? Well, for the communities of Turner Valley and Black Diamond, it is currently a topic of discussion. So we're going to speak with Black Diamond Mayor Ruth Goodwin about the process already in motion to merge the two towns. A family of five was run down by a pickup truck while they were walking on the sidewalk in London Sunday evening, killing four of them. And then yesterday, this message from that city's police chief. There is evidence that this was a planned, premeditated act motivated by hate. It is believed that these victims were targeted because they were Muslim. There is no known previous connection between the suspect and the victims. This news has rocked the Muslim community across the country and frankly all of us and including here in Calgary where a vigil is planned for this evening at City Hall. We're joined this morning by the organizer of tonight's event, Saima Jamal, who is also the co-founder of the Calgary Immigrant Support Society. Good morning, Saima. Good morning. Well, first of all, we're very sorry for the loss to your community. Uh, What kind of emotions have you been feeling, especially after you first heard about the family being hit and struck by that truck and then finding out that police believe this is actually an act of racism? You know, we are just absolutely traumatized. We're shattered. I mean, the outrage, the disbelief that we're feeling right now, it's, it's indescribable. It's like we're going through a deja vu, you know. It's uh, one attack after the other attack. Just a couple of weeks ago, we saw that uh, horrifying Islamophobic attack in the road rage in Calgary. Now we're seeing it in London, Ontario, and um, in Edmonton, all over. You know, we had the Quebec massacre. It's like uh, the severity of these attacks, this terror attacks on Muslims are increasing in huge frequency. And um, and I don't know anything what to do other than, you know, we're making a full cry for help to the greater Canadian public that, you know, take our concerns of hate crime about Islamophobia seriously. We're asking our government official, our law enforcement, take this seriously. We have now come to the point where uh, taking a simple evening walk while Muslim is now considered an act of bravery. This should not be happening. This, this, is, this is unbelievable that this is where we have finally landed up in. Sam, I'm wondering, uh, did you know the family affected or there, is there a connection to Calgary? You know, as Muslims, we consider ourselves, you know, one ummah, one community. We're all considered brothers and sisters, whether we know them or not. So for me, I don't need to know them, which I I don't know them personally. Many people don't, but they're feeling that collective trauma. 
because you know somebody somebody that is from your faith somebody that you can relate to how they pray like you how they look like you they they died and even you don't have to be connected through a faith you know this is a canadian tragedy we're connected through humanity everyone is feeling this and it's i don't know what what else how else to describe this I think you're right. It is a Canadian tragedy and we should all be paying attention. And, and I know there are vigils set up ar- across the country and we do have one here in Calgary tonight. Uh, why is it important for us to, to join together? And are, are we all welcome to come together with our Muslim brothers and sisters for this vigil tonight? You know, we as Muslims, we can't fight Islamophobia by ourselves. That is why it is imperative. We need you, the rest of Canada. We need all of our friends from every faith and no faith and every background to join hands now because we need some mechanism. We need help to cope with through this trauma. So we really welcome everybody to come. Wear your mask, you know, keep your social distancing and come tonight at 8.30 p.m. at City Hall because, you know, we, we, we can't walk, if we can't walk, you know, without fearing, standing in that intersection, waiting for that light to change, to cross over and worry about every car that's passing by that they might hit us just because we look different or we dress different. You know, it, we, we, we need help. Yeah. We need our Canadian brothers and sisters to come and stand yeah. with us now. Absolutely. And we're inviting people at 830 tonight at City Hall for the vigil. Thanks so much for your time, Saima. Thank you. There's Saima Jamal, co-founder of the Calgary Immigrant Support Society. Well, it's certainly a topic getting deserved attention for people across the country. Next steps to healing the wounds created by residential schools. The West Block this week dove into that very topic with not only an Indigenous leader, but someone who's also been near the top of the political spectrum in Canada, Jody Wilson-Raybould. We're joined now to discuss with Mercedes Stevenson, Global's Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning, Sue and Andy. Thanks for being with us. Happy Tuesday to you and uh, interesting show for sure. And and boy, if anybody has a right to speak on how Canada can move forward, it would be Wilson Raybould as a former First Nations chief, cabinet minister in the Trudeau government. Did she delve into her past to provide some perspective on the issue? She didn't go so deeply into her past as to continue to call on the government to do things that, that she's been calling on them to do from before her time in government, from while she was a cabinet minister, and to now when she's an independent. Um, and to really basically call on the government to follow through on a lot of their promises they've made um, to Indigenous people. And as you know, when she was in the government, she did not want to be the Minister of Indigenous Services. And in fact, that was um, allegedly a great sticking point in the relationship going downhill between she and the Prime Minister's office uh, when they were planning to shuffle her and they asked her to consider being the Minister of, of Indigenous Services. And she had always made it clear that because of her very strong feelings about the Indian Act, which on our program she called uh, a racist and colonialist piece of legislation, that she would never never be the Minister of Indigenous Services because she would not enforce the Indian Act. Um, and so she really is, is still calling to, you know, have the government do some of the things they promised back even before 2015 when they were putting together their platform. Um, you know, to be fair to the government, they have done 
more for Indigenous people and Indigenous groups than previous governments. But considering how little so many previous governments did, that's actually not that much. And they're well short of a number of their promises that they have made. Um, and when you look at the situation when it comes to, for example, the number of Indigenous kids in foster care or who still have to leave their homes to go away. So, you know, putting aside all everything from the past and the reconciliation there, even just looking at the present, uh, they've made progress, for example, on getting rid of oil water advisories, but they're not even at their own numbers. And a lot of folks in the Indigenous community who we've spoken to have said they appreciate the efforts, but they're frustrated that after six years in government, there's not been more progress. Mm. I'm wondering, did uh, Wilson Raybould offer up any uh, advice on what she would provide, um, you know, to the government perhaps uh, for the next steps for Canada? She basically says it's time to get rid of the Indian Act. Um, you've got to replace that with something else. That 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 alone would show. Um, respect of, you know, right to self-determination for Canada's Indigenous people, that the act that is essentially running all of the Crown Indigenous relations is, in her opinion, and and a lot of people's opinion, uh, very racist legislation, and and that it's very deeply tainted. The problem is that to replace the Indian Act, uh, there has to be something, there has to be something to replace that relationship between the Crown and Canada's Indigenous communities, and that'll take quite some time to develop. And it doesn't seem like the government is very far down that path. Mark Miller, the uh, actual minister in charge of the file, said that he agrees. He thinks it's a racist and colonialist piece of legislation too. Um, But there's not really a sense that the government's very far along the journey that it would take um, to actually be able to replace that legislation. And for a lot of a lot of leaders and groups, that's what they would really like to see done um, in the long term to, for Justin Trudeau to to make the promises. Pardon me, meet the promises he made mm-hmm. uh, back in February of 2018 um, in a now pretty famous speech that he gave, and a lot of those have fallen short. The government says, you know, they've accepted um, and are are making progress on 80% of the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But that number is a little bit misleading because when they say 80%, that refers to even having initiated, like, conversations. It's not that they've achieved and implemented 80%. It's that they've started talking about 80%. Well, and that'll go far, won't it, talking? Uh, we need to get some to some action, no doubt. Um, how did uh, Mercedes Jody Wilson-Raybould react when she heard about the discovery of the bodies of the 250 children near the grounds of that former residential school in Kamloops. She talked about that, I know. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's that's a very difficult thing for her. She's an Indigenous woman. Uh, she's from British Columbia. Obviously, the legacy of, of residential schools, and in particular of the Kamloops residential school, is looming very large and, and painfully um, in the lives of, of people in British Columbia's Indigenous community and all across Canada. She actually was in her home community when this news happened uh, and she posted a picture of it. I've never seen where she's from before. It's spectacularly beautiful. There was a rainbow behind it. Um, and she said she was really glad that she was home at the time, um, that she was able to, you know, honor the lives of those children who died and to be with her community and to talk to her community and be supported by them. Uh, but obviously, like a lot of folks, she would like to see more progress on on helping those who are survivors of residential schools uh, and the families of those children who went to residential schools. The government has set aside, for example, over $30 million to track down uh, these unmarked grave sites. But 
27 million is unspent. So why is that happening? Why is the money being accessed? A lot of questions there still and uh, obviously very difficult, but not at all surprising news for Jody Wilson-Raybould. Wow, incredible. And uh, yeah, to that point, you know, uh, as far as now there's even calls of, you know, cancel, well, I, I hate the term cancel culture, but there's terms of uh, perhaps putting the brakes on Canada Day this year. Yet there are certainly groups saying perhaps that that shouldn't go forward. Others who say, you know, it's time to start getting rid of statues of certain officials or renaming places like Ryerson University mm-hmm. or the Sir John A. Macdonald Parkway here in Ottawa. Um, and that's something that governments at all levels, uh, federal, municipal and provincial, are going to have to figure out where they want to go. And some are, are simply choosing not to replace statues that have been knocked down. Mm-hmm. In other cases where you're talking about building names, uh, some, as I know, out in, in your area are choosing to make changes to the names immediately. Um, and You know, it'll be really interesting, I think, to see what the federal government does with some of these places that are named after people who are the fathers of confederation in some case. Uh, So they played a huge role in forming this country, but they also very much had racist past Mm -hmm. um, and past that were very painful for Indigenous Canadians. So uh, I think that's going to be a very sensitive and passionate debate on both sides. um, And the government will have some interesting and challenging choices ahead of them. And we'll no doubt be talking to you more about this as we move forward. Thank you so much for joining us again, Mercedes. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. As was promised by Jason Kenney during the last election campaign, a referendum is coming on requesting the Canadian government do away with equalization payments. Well, Kenney has now unveiled the question that will be asked during our upcoming municipal election in October. Should Section 36.2 of the Constitution Act 1982, Parliament and the Government of Canada's commitment to the principle of making equalization payments, be removed from the Constitution? So what does all this mean? For more on the political ramifications around this so-called referendum, we're joined this morning by Lisa Young, a political science professor at the University of Calgary. Good morning, Professor. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Appreciate you being here. So let's talk about this. If Albertans were to vote in favour of this question, what does it even mean, if anything? Well, it doesn't really mean much. At best, it means that the Premier gets a little bit of leverage in having conversations with the federal government around um, the formula for equalization. So what is, uh, you know, the difference, we go back years, but uh, between this and, say, the Quebec uh, separation referendum, can we draw any parallels or is it completely different? I think this is completely different. Um, the separation referendum had, uh, you know, clear meaning uh, for the, the province of Quebec to go ahead and start negotiating a new relationship with uh, uh, the government of Canada. Now, there was a Supreme Court case that asked the question of, you know, whether uh, the, the federal government and the other provinces would have to negotiate with a province that had voted to separate on a where there was a clear mandate on a clear question. And there are some people who argue that the referendum on equalization would 
um, fall under this this Supreme Court uh, decision that says that, yes, there would be an obligation to negotiate. But most constitutional scholars don't agree with that. They say, no, this this isn't about equalization. That only had to do with provinces that were voting to leave Canada. Professor, what happens for Jason Kenney, particularly, if Albertans actually vote no to this question? Well, I think then there's a lot of egg on the Premier's face. Um, you know, the, the, his party has been talking about this referendum for a long time. He's been using it, I think, to, you know, suggest to the federal government that there was real problems in, in Alberta that needed to be dealt with. And so he's tried to use it as leverage even before it's happened. So if if people vote no, if the majority of Albertans uh, who, who go to the polls in the municipal election vote no, it's going to cause a real political problem for the premier. So, Professor, is this a case of, you know, the political squeaky wheel? If uh, if we, we bring this up kind of a saber rattling, we might get maybe not a fair deal, but a, a slightly better deal down the line of an opening of the conversation? Well, certainly, I think there's an argument to be made for uh, looking at the formula for equalization. Um, you know, I, I think we've seen a reasonable willingness uh, from Ottawa and the other provinces to have a conversation about this in any event. I'm not sure that uh, the outcome of the referendum really makes that much difference uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, um, even if it's overwhelming. So do you think that, is that really the point? I mean, does the Premier likely doesn't expect the feds will amend the Constitution no matter what Albertans say? So is this more about just getting the conversation brought to the forefront again? I think it's absolutely about uh, the conversation, and it's also about showing um, Albertans, uh, you know, who who feel that they don't have a fair deal, that the provincial government is doing something. But I think it's really important that people keep in mind that the federal government can um, give equalization payments, whether it's in the Constitution or not. The the you know, the inclusion in the Constitution is really quite symbolic. The way that equalization works is that we all pay our taxes to the federal government, and the federal government transfers money to the provinces uh, to pay for various things. One of the, the transfers is an equalization transfer. So the federal government doesn't need anything in the Constitution in order to have equalization um, occur. So um, I think it's really important to keep in mind that this really is just a symbolic vote. I was reading that, you know, we've had other referendums of, since 1915, seven questions to voters, the most recent held in August 1971 on daylight saving time. So we could say that this is the, the, the very first in, in modern times, isn't it, for us? <laughs> I guess it depends if you think of 1971 as not being modern, but yes, it's <laughs> That's the first 50 years, in a long almost, time. We're talking about 50 years ago now. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Half a century. So, so do you think that that has any bearing that, you know, finally Albertans, Albertans feel like they have a special, a special vote or a special voice? I'm not sure that's really the case. Um, you know, putting this together with a municipal election, um, you know, sort of suggests that it's, you know, we have uh, referendums uh, at the municipal level fairly often, right? We've we've had them on fluoride in Calgary, for example. So it, it doesn't seem like a, a special event in the mm-hmm. same way that it would be if it was a standalone referendum. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm not sure that it's going to really have that that feeling of significance. Um, it's certainly not analogous to something like having a vote on the Charlottetown Accord, which uh, you know took place uh, back in the 1990s nationally. Uh, Professor, when was the last time Alberta received an equalization payment from the federal government? <laughs> I will be, confess that I don't know. Must the be six sixties then, at least, right? Yeah, it's been quite a while. Um, but again, I think it's really important to keep in mind that the reason that Alberta doesn't receive equalization is because we are, even in bad times, very affluent. I still, I think the Albertans have this feeling that money is being funneled mm-hmm. out of our pockets. Mm-hmm. So it is an interesting conversation, and I guess we'll see the results as we move uh, closer and then uh, we'll move into October. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning, Professor. My pleasure. That is Lisa Young, political science professor at the University of Calgary. And yeah, text line is always open. To me, and, and the more you dig into this, to me, it's just saber rattling and, and, and optics. And sometimes that's what it takes, as I put to the professor, you know, the squeaky wheel. Yeah. And yeah, maybe I'm you know dating myself, but I consider 50 years ago. It's <laughs> half a hundred. I'm almost there myself. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, it's been a long time since Albertans has had a referendum you know, on the unifying 1971 daylight saving time, which again, that might come up sometime again soon. And by the way, uh, Alberta has not received an equalization payment since the 64, 65 fiscal year. Well, they reside only about three kilometers apart and already share some infrastructure. But now the towns of Black Diamond and Turner Valley are close to potentially sharing a lot more if they choose to merge. We're joined now by Black Diamond Mayor Ruth Goodwin to chat about the possibilities. Good morning to you, Mayor. Good morning, Andy, and how are you doing this morning? Good. Thank you for joining us this morning, bright and early. Uh, uh, So to begin with, these two towns, uh, close proximity for sure, three kilometers. What sparked this idea to perhaps merge the two? Well, the discussion with regards to amalgamation, Andy, have been going on for many, many years. And, you know, we have developed such an incredible, comprehensive collaboration type of a relationship over these years that we just felt um, the timing was right and uh, we're looking at uh, going through not looking at but we are actually participating right now in the amalgamation application process so mayor what are are the the upsides of it because obviously it would be something positive for both towns i'm assuming or you wouldn't even be talking about it no absolutely so when we're taking a look at the reasons why we were looking at amalgamating rather than just having that comprehensive collaboration. There's a degree of duplication that occurs in these types of relationships. And really, we're trying to remove and achieve a much more efficient and effective service and standards and shared goals. Uh, Also, with a combined tax base, we'll be able to uh, maximize the access to both funding from provincial and federal governments. Uh, And and an example would be, of course, policing with our shared policing costs now that all municipalities share in Alberta. And also, we feel that uh, a single entity will create a a larger presence within the region. Can you break down the steps to merge two municipalities and and the time frame involved and when, when it could happen? Well, our two councils 
uh, chose to make sure that as we started this process, Andy, that we were doing it um, very thoughtfully. And we wanted to have that time to research and review and be able to recommend um, to a larger body, governing body, which is from subcommittee to committee of JFAC, which is the Joint Friendship Agreement Committee that entails all 14 council members from both towns. And going through that process, really starting in September of 2020, and currently we're three quarters of the way through that whole process. Uh, we've had one uh, engagement event, and that occurred at the end of March, uh, beginning of April, and that was to hear from our residents, businesses, and stakeholders, uh, trying to uh, gather as many questions that are incredibly relevant to a lot of our um, people within our communities. Uh, we've just completed our uh, governance uh, survey and that was dealing with whether or not our residents and business owners were looking at uh, directing us to put in the application whether or not we were looking at an at-large governing model or a ward system. Uh, this last Sunday concluded a pre-naming event and that entailed uh, gathering uh, suggestions from community members as to a potential new name. And that's that's the fun part, isn't it, Mayor? I mean, like Diamond Valley, Turner Diamond. So are you asking us to submit names and how might we do that? Well, we had asked. Now that event is all finished. Okay. Darn yes. it. I missed my and chance. <laughs> yes, you did, unfortunately. But this is where you will have an opportunity. And that's the, again, we're trying to encourage as many of our residents and business owners and stakeholders to, to engage in this process. But in the coming weeks, the uh, subcommittee that is uh, dealing with this activity is going to shortlist uh, names that have been submitted. And then it will be going out uh, for a period of time okay. on another engagement survey to be able to, to get people to let us know what they think the name should be. Can't wait, and we'll get an update from you at that time. If you can slide it onto the list, Mayor, uh, Sue and Andyville would be great, but, you know, I understand <laughs> if it's too late. But we'll we'll talk to you as, as we get closer, and good luck with the process. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Sue. Have Appreciate a great it. day. You too. That's Ruth Goodwin, who is the mayor of Black Diamond. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.